Father, thank you so much for your words and revealing yourself to us through scripture. Thank you for the Holy Spirit promised to us a helper better than actually having Christ here himself because he can be all present um, everywhere where believers are gathered right now. And so we're thankful for that unity and communion, both with fellow believers, but especially with you, that your very presence is here with us. Catch our hearts on fire figuratively for you. Let us know the truth and may it set us free. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Uh, so I'm, uh, is there any kid that's in um, been in elementary, middle, or high school in the past 10 years that doesn't know or hasn't used Khan Academy? Anybody? Caleb, you don't think you have used Khan Academy? Yeah, and that explains a lot. No, <laughs> just um, I'm a I'm a big Khan Academy fan. It's named after Sal Khan, who developed. He he had a nephew, I believe, who was not getting the attention he needed from his teacher on math, and so he'd record videos and send them to his nephew to help explain difficult math concepts. And so out sprang Khan Academy, where he just put these recordings out to all kids, and now it's like almost every educational institution in the United States and then internationally has access to like, okay, it's particularly with math is their bread and butter, but now they're in every subject. Um, I'm a big fan and particularly not about Salcon. In fact, I'm sure there's so much fundamentally like, who are we that Salcon and I would disagree on and you probably too. But I really appreciate um, the research he's used to develop like what's an effective education tool. And I think he'd be the first to admit it's much better if you'd have a coach, a human, in-life person to say, look, this is how you get from A to B with this concept, with this math problem, with, with this, with anything. Here's the journey. Here's the roadmap for you to go from I don't know and now I do know. Um, but the reality is resources are scarce, right? Human resources are the most scared of all. Humans are the the best resource God created is very good. We're the only one to get that label of very good in creation. Everything else is good. We are very good. Humans, we are the ultimate creation. And, and never let that truth leave you because it is, it is getting beat on by the world. Like, ah, humans are just another piece of the cosmic puzzle. puzzle. Like, not according to scripture. Humans are special, uniquely created. And so that's where it's like, you have humanity. Anytime you come across a human... It is like coming across something precious. It's more precious and valuable than gold. Their time, their life, more precious. And so, yes, you would love to have a human interacting with a human, teaching, guiding, loving, but there aren't enough humans. And that's a result of the fall of creation. Like, oh, there's not enough. Like parents, yes. Like fathers are like gods to their children. So are mothers, but there's not enough fathers, right? And fathers are neglecting a lot of their responsibilities. So we have a lot of lost kids. Um, and so mothers are picking up the pace a lot where fathers should be. There's not enough. And so we enter technology to help fix some of these problems. Not ideal, but hey, we're dealing in a scarce world right now. So what that Khan Academy does is that it will take a child and try to put them not where they're really comfortable. Because if I put in front of Hanner, Hanner, what's three plus two? He's going to have a real comfortable time answering that math problem. But if I start to insert alge algebraic expressions into that three plus two, all of a sudden it's like, Gah. and if I go too far, now he's not, he's so uncomfortable that he'd give up. And so what, um, what it's actually, the name of it is called the, the zone of proximal development. 
that you're shooting for. Not too comfortable, but not give up. Right there at the edge. We call it the edge of yourself. The zone of proximal development. So anytime you want to learn and develop a new skill, practically speaking, it's actually saying it's super efficient. You can do anything as long as you put yourself in that zone of proximal development for as long as you can tolerate it. And you can't tolerate it because what else is scarce? Your energy and attention. So you put yourself in that zone. As long as you stay in that zone, you are becoming and getting better and actually revealing parts of us that I think God has planted in there is if you can stay in that zone. And a lot of you who are older in the room are thinking, oh, that's nice for kids. Like, no, that is false. You still have a zone of proximal development where you still can do new things. You can teach an old dog new tricks. And that has been shown over and over. But often those old dogs say, nope, not worth it anymore. Don't believe the lies. You're still here. You're still have a purpose. Keep learning new tricks, old dogs. Um, but that's all digressing. The reality is, is to get a kid, in this case in Khan Academy, to the edge of themselves. And then it gets both hard and scary because you actually, it's like coming to the edge of a, a canyon. You are putting yourself out as you build that next step. And you got to sometimes test your weight but you still have one foot on solid ground. And so you're like, all right, I'm testing it. And you're developing, you're getting, you're trying to get better in this case, math with Khan Academy or if anything. Um, how do you find it? And would it help if you did have a, a human like being able to observe you? Yes. In fact, one thing that I've been trying to do like with tennis players is the more you can video yourself, <laughs> the better. Because why can't you often find that zone of proximal development, that ZPD? Is because you, you have no idea where you're at. I can't tell. Am I good? Or am I not? What's happening? You need to observe yourself. You need to look into the mirror. If you knew you looked really ugly in the morning, um, it's not always the most exciting thing to look in your mirror. But you choose to do it because you know we're gonna, someone else is going to have to see that face later. So that mirror can be incredibly, ugh, but it's good. To look, to actually see, where am I right now? Yikes, let's fix a few things. Um, same with, you know, you say it's not a mirror, it's, but it's like, hey, we can record things pretty quick. I'd be like, ah, um, what, how, this, this, this teaching, like, okay, I can record it, I can listen back. Like, that hit, that did not, that was a foolish thing to say. Um, with a tennis stroke, all right, take a look. Where, where's your racket actually going? It's crazy, you can be like, hey, on your backswing, I want you to start right here, all right, to a, 10 year old. All right. See here, do that. That's the only thing I want you to focus on. Do it. Okay. What? <laughs> I just said, do that one thing. I did do it. Like, okay, I get it. We just don't, we don't actually aren't able to observe ourselves very well. And you're like, what does this have to do with the gospel of Luke? And I'm getting there. Um, but keep those two things in mind right now. Do you want to actually observe? Do you want to look in the mirror of your do you want to put your heart in the mirror? Do you want to know where your heart's at? What it's actually depending upon? For what? For eternity? We talked about Sunday school. You've heard me say before. We all are waiting our pending death in this world. You are going to die. It's so certain. And the only reason people wouldn't want to talk about it as such a real certainty is because they're scared. 
Why else would you not want to start talking about the thing that most people are just searching, craving an answer to? Because I can have all the riches of the earth, but I'm dead. I could have all of the beautiful experiences, but I'm dead here. I can have raise a million children who love me and adore me, but I'm dead. It didn't matter. All this were laid low and flat by death altogether, no matter what. So wouldn't we want to talk about, okay, so is there an answer to that? And the, where the scriptures reveal, absolutely there are. There is an answer to death. And it's made clear in the, the scriptures. It's made clear in the gospel. And so that's really, okay, let's talk about that. One, but then let's get real about our pending death and then where our hearts and what our hearts are actually counting on. One of the most revealing questions you could answer for, for myself, for yourself, when you get to the gates of the kingdom of heaven, whatever those quote-unquote gates look like, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm sure it's beyond our own understanding of what the gates might be. But when his kingdom comes, and there are those who are left out and those who are welcomed in, why would you deserve to be let in to the most perfect kingdom to ever exist? Why? R.C. Sproul said his son, when he asked him that question, I don't know, he didn't say how old he was, but said, why, son, would you deserve to be let in? Because I'm dead? <laughs> He's like, that was the worst answer I've ever heard from my own son. Death, justification by death. <laughs> Just because you're dead, you should be let into heaven. And I, I admit I probably would have answered that too at certain points in my life. Or you might say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I've tried to be good. Justification by what? Your own good deeds, your own works. And R.C. Sproul said in his time, he spent a few years, and this was probably 30 years ago, doing like a lot of missionary stuff like in, in neighborhoods and just typical American places. They kept track of how often they'd ask that question, what the answer came back. 90%, he said then, this was 30 years ago-ish, 90% of the answers whether they were Christians or not, 90% of the answers came back with some sort of, because I have done this good thing. 90%. And this isn't a statistical exercise, but it's revealing to think, ah, oh, yeah. And there were times in my life where I sat, I particularly remember sitting right there in the middle between Wanda and Brenda, and now looking up and say, I am thankful that my church attendance will get me into heaven. <laughs> I am thankful that God, that my mom has brought me here. So whew, I don't have to worry about burning in hell for eternity for me because I'm here at church. What was the guy up front saying up here at the pulpit while I was sitting there saying, I have no idea. I wasn't listening. <laughs> but I know in that day, Wake got justification by church attendance. And that's what I was counting on for my salvation. Uh, so ultimately, what does that have to do with finding, bringing you to the edge of yourself? The edge of yourself is really what you're going to present that day when you say, why do you deserve God's righteousness? Why do you deserve his kingdom? What you'll have to figure out is, where am I at the edge of myself? How much do I bring to say, because I am this person, because I've done this thing, because I have handled myself in this way? bringing to the edge of yourself. And it's an important thing that I'd hope that when we leave here together, we'd all be pretty clear on where the edge of ourself is 
in relation to eternity. So let's read uh, the scripture together, which is Luke chapter 18, 9 through 17. And it says it like this. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them to him saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter. So let's uh, maybe take a look into the mirror of this passage. What can be observed here? Well, honestly, the passage speaks for itself. It, it may have been the best thing I could have do, done to read that and just say, take that with you and take it home. And let know those are the very words of Christ speaking into the contrast of two types of humans, the one who exalts himself and the one who is humbled. I, and, and maybe that was the right thing to do this morning. I have a few other words I want to give you, um, and I hope they're faithful. But that parable speaks for itself. Who are you? And are you the one justified or not? And do you understand the implications, the consequences, if you are not justified before the creator of all things, the father of all things? It means weeping and gnashing of teeth. It means judgment, punishment. Do you grasp the reality of eternal judgment? That is a big deal. The biggest deal. Much more important than droughts. Much more important than the chiefs. Much more important than untimely deaths of our friends and loved ones. Of sickness and eternal consequences of either being justified or living outside of God's justification. What else can we observe? Well, early on, we observed this Pharisee stood, and he didn't just stand. They both came to the temple. They both came to church. They're both there. They both have two very different perspectives of what they're doing there. And it says the Pharisee in particular, which if you think about, um, which isn't in this scripture, but what is the Pharisee's context? What how did he get to where he's at? And what we've talked about in, in this church before, we know Pharisees were the best of the best. Because when young boys got to about 12 or 13, their mob mitzvah, they were separated. Anybody who's like really with it, really smart, really sharp, 
hey, we're going to give you further biblical training. Other boys, it's time to go get to work. Let's be productive. You boys come learn the Talmud. Come study scripture. Other boys like, hey, go learn a trade. And so these are the boys that have been picked out. So we could already understand this man, this Pharisee in Jesus' parable, is one who said, you are good. You are good at memorizing the Torah. You are good at understanding its truths. You are good about showing up and putting yourself in front of the altar of God. You are good. And so you can imagine this Pharisee looks pretty dumb in this parable of, of Jesus's. He looks like the, the idiot who's going to be judged and condemned forever. And so that is not what this, these readers of Jesus telling us would expect because these were the good guys of the time, the ones who had something to point to. Look at what I've done. But in this case, this Pharisee, not only can he point to look at what I've done, but he actually then, by negative association, points by what he hasn't done. I like the adulterers, those who are just giving their bodies away without caring about how God you've created our bodies to, to glorify you. Those who are um, just miscreants in all sorts of ways, doing things that's like, oh, you can't do those in public places. We can't talk about such things. And out of that, it says he has contempt for the tax collector. And obviously, because that man's working for Rome, and in that context, ugh, the ultimate enemy and oppressive, oppressive regime, the Romans. The Greek word exotheneo literally means, that is contempt, literally means to treat as insignificant, to disregard, to despise, or to treat with contempt. It means basically you are nothing. So it implies treating at someone as nothing, worthless. You aren't worth anything. That's what the, in, in Jesus' parable, tax collector, you are nothing. That's what the contempt meant coming from one way, from the Pharisee to the tax collector. You are not nothing. And Jesus uh, has not the first time he would point this out. The last time he'd point this out. He, um, in Matthew 23, Matthew records Jesus' seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And it's really interesting because he uses the same language as we see um, when talking about this parable in Luke's gospel. Um, that he goes on and on. I won't read it all to you, but Matthew 23, if you can check it out um, sometime this week or today. But then Jesus again, as he says, You scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And, and then he ultimately says again, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, so you, this was on Jesus' mind a lot. And in fact, and you might be like, yeah, I thought we already talked about that. And you're right, because probably three months ago when we were in Luke 14, it's the parable of the wedding feast where Jesus says, hey, remember a wedding feast? You take a seat. Where should you sit? Should you sit near the head of the table towards the host so that you can be People can see you, right? That's a good place. You get that positive attention, that, that energy that's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a good human. I'm doing this. He says, no, 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 no. Sit at the end. Because what if you come and get removed from that high spot and sit down low? That's shame. But what if out of your humble state, you get exalted, be brought up like, no, my friend, sit at the higher end of the table at the host. And Jesus, again, there says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
obviously this was on Jesus's heart and mind a lot. So that's one thing we observe that contempt and you're nothing. I'm something. But then that word justification also comes through. And I think it's worth reading uh, Matthew chapter nine, where we saw um, Matthew um, getting actually called Levi, the tax collector, Matthew. And that's recorded in Matthew nine, where it says, as Jesus passed on, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Seems like a similar to Jesus parable. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The term for justification, dikayau, carries the meaning of declaring, pronouncing one to be just, righteous, or such as they ought to be. So we've talked the last few weeks, I brought up the term sozo, S-O-Z-O, which really means a, um, to be saved into wholeness. Sozo, saved, salvation, into being made as you ought to be. Or you could also use the Hebrew term shalom. Just means like a peace beyond even what words can say. Shalom was their best effort. Like, be well, be whole. Make sure everything feels good. Everything feels right. Everything is as it should be. And now we also have dekayao, which means also justification, but it's also things are as they ought to be. And that's where I started a few weeks ago. Like, why are you here? And this isn't like a grand time. You know, this isn't like an exciting amusement park ride. This isn't like exciting as like winning the Super Bowl. Why are you here? I think we're here because we have realized and we've even paid attention to the gospel because our eyes have been made open to like things aren't right. They're not as they should be. What's gone wrong and what do I really want? If I had a little bit more money, a little bit more attention from my spouse, the honoring and respect of my children, then are things whole? And we know like, no, those things leave me hungry for more. There's always a thirst for more. What if we could have every need satisfied? And that's, I think, what justification here at this point. The tax collector was justified. He had some things to point to as well as the Pharisee. It's not that it's just a poor man. Jesus chose a tax collector in this parable. He was likely rich in comparison to his friends and neighbors or his lack of friends. He had something except we see him in this parable as beating his chest, saying, I really know I have nothing to offer. Humbled, made low. And then the final observation of this uh, scripture that we read together in Luke's gospel is that childlike faith, receiving the kingdom of God like a child. This is something I look forward to talking to about in Sunday school next week. Or like, what does that actually mean to you? Some of us are closer to our childhood than others. Some of us probably forget, like, oh, it's, such, it's been a long time. I forget what it felt like to be a kid, the, what I believed and why I believed it. And often children we teach, we treat with contempt as the disciples say, no, nah, you're not worthy. We don't have time for you. But Jesus say, no, 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 no. Back that truck up. It's the opposite. This is exactly who understands. 
And why, why that is the case, we don't get a huge explanation here in Scripture, but I think if we put the piece together, like, okay, what about children? It goes back to what I said to begin this, this time together. What about my son or my daughters? They really, they trust me. Why? Because I'm the best dad in the world. No, I'm not. But they have no other choice. They are desperate for an adult to give them some provision to help them survive the day. Otto, little baby Otto that's here today, right? Can't even make it across the room. Getting a little better at that. But it's too dangerous to get across the room. And so completely reliant upon what? His mom, his loving mom, his loving father. Instead of saying, mom, I got it. He probably might, but he doesn't have the words to yet. He can't. <laughs> He's desperate for his parents to love him and to save him, honestly. Otherwise, he'd be done. He'd be toast. Where are you? To, to uh, make it cold and Khan Academy-like, what's your zone of proximal development? <laughs> You're like, well, I have done some things. For me today, it's like, I led worship this morning. What'd you do? I preached the gospel in front of people. I'm not afraid of public speaking. What'd you do? Look, I did some other good stuff. What'd you do? That's, that's tempting. As much as I can laugh at it, like, yeah, Wake doesn't believe that. It's like, oh, I wish I could say it didn't. Outside, I can totally say, that's so foolish talk, but it's funny. It's a joke. In my heart, I'm not so sure. I'm scared about saying, huh, Wake, you did. You did teach. How many other people are, you know, working out of their own business and teaching? And I'm afraid there I'm finding, uh-oh, I've already received the reward for all those things because I think I've done them. As opposed to what is the reality? The reality is standing before you today, reading the scripture, presenting the gospel is one who is stained completely and totally by his own lack of of righteousness or his dire depraved unrighteousness his sin and you and and you might be like yeah that's nice of you to say that you have to say that because like no it is true dark stains blots ugly minstrel rags that's who stands before you i am unashamed to say so because why because i know who saved me. I know that Christ has taken every burden away from this man who's made so many dire mistakes that the world can observe and probably exponentially more in my heart that you can't observe. And yet I am confident, not in my ability, like, but I'll be better next year. No, in myself, the worst is yet to come. But in the one who says, if you stop, <laughs> I will start. And in Christ, I can say, look at me, not as a man who gets things right, not as a guy who tries to do as many push-ups as he can during the day, but a guy whose body will fail him, but will be made new in Christ and Christ alone by my good works. No, but by my faith in Christ. And I know I'm saved by Christ because I know my old way of living and the pressure to perform has, if it's not completely gone, it is diminished to the point where it's about ready to disappear. And it may never completely disappear before I get to see the kingdom, 
but I have no pressure to perform. Not for you, not for anybody, except for Christ. And what did he tell me to perform? Humble yourself, Wakefield. Just stop trying to be good on your own. Be like the tax collector who is doing what? Saying, I collected so many taxes for you. He is in this posture physically unable to lift his eyes. And you can know that sometimes we get to a place where what I'm feeling on the inside, it can't help but be shown on the outside. Our tears are one of those moments. Like, why does our body leak when we're upset? We're so happy. It's so strange. But God, something inside us are such powerful feelings that sometimes it just can't come out. And in this story, what is that? Like, how Hannah, sometimes when you get upset, you'll give a pillow a good shot, right? And it's what we've taught him to do. Because if you're that upset, hitting a pillow is a lot better than hitting your dad. And in this case, we see the man not hitting a pillow, but hitting himself. Beating his chest. Why does someone beat their chest? That's a strange thing to do. It's because he's gripped by the state of his soul that says, I have money. I've tried righteousness, and it is failing me. It is failing. I have nothing to bring. So where do we find the tax collector at the edge of himself? At the edge of himself, he says, I have nothing. That laugh that actually gives me satisfaction. I have no wholeness. I am not as I ought. To be. And it comes out in this physical manifestation of like, oh, this hurts so much. I have no answer. I can't do it. And yet we see the contrast of that of the Pharisee. Like, oh, look what I've done. Look, look at this kingdom I've created for myself. I tithe. I give to the poor. I'm respected by all that I'll come across today. It feels good. And in other contexts, Jesus says, it better feel good because that is the extent of the reward you will receive. Everything else, chaff. In front of the one who says, treasure, I give you treasure that lasts forever, you have nothing now. He who humbles himself, he who is exalting himself will be humble. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That's not humility of, oh, shucks, thanks, no, I'm not that great. It's humility saying, I have nothing Zero to offer. And when I give up and I find my edge in myself, it's like I didn't even get started and I'm at the edge of myself when it comes to God's eyes. Then guess who gets to start working? The one whose work's already finished on the cross. The cross is back there. The work's been done. So whatever burden you're carrying, like I'm feeling the pressure, I'm feeling the heat, I'm feeling it in my children, in my marriage, feeling it at work or by prices in this market. I'm feeling it by the geopolitical turmoil. Oh, this is, oh, that, it's too small. Stop. You know you are finding your edge of yourself at your work, market prices, your children, your spouse. Don't find your edge of yourself at those things. Those are but gifts given by the creator says, find your edge of yourself in me where you don't offer a thing and I offer you everything completely and totally. Now I say like, Hey, have you ever actually trusted that? Have you ever actually come to the place where you made the confession of the tax collector? I be merciful to me. I have nothing to offer. Have you ever actually done that? 
And then to be able to, to have somewhat of a test for yourself to say, what is annoying? Where am I showing contempt? Who do I show contempt at? If it's at Satan, good. He deserves every contempt he gets. But our contempt is that my contempt is often in my wife. Why would that be? Because I'm a Pharisee. I'm in that camp. My contempt is at my children. Why? Because I think they are my source of justification. No. Is it great when they honor me and my household is well, um, is peaceful? Yes, but not because it earns me anything before God, but because I know they found my dad doesn't have carry this pressure. And he's not put it on me. He's showing me that there is a God who's faithful, true, and just. And I can trust in him. And what do I have to do? I have to be a better father? No. I simply have to stop, find the edge of myself before I even begin, and therefore let God do all the work and believe and trust in him. Um, I want you to believe that because it's saving and his kingdom is coming even now as his spirit exists in us. Like we get glimpses of heaven even now. And I can say, I believe I've glimpsed heaven. Not like, oh, come look at my house. It's like heaven. No, in here. You see any joy, any peace in me? I think this is a dose of heaven that Christ has given me as a gift on this side of his second coming where it's like, boom, it's all there. And people are going to have regrets that they didn't believe when he called. We don't have to live in that. You have right now the clarity of the gospel. What do you need to believe? That you offer nothing and Christ offers everything. Every guilt that you feel, you don't need to live in that guilt. You walk out like, yeah, but I, I still got to work on this. You will be guilty as long as you're trying on your own. You will be set free the moment you say, I stop. My striving cease so Christ's work can be made full in me. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And it's real. It's true. So you can find yourself in this place. You don't have to wait any longer. You can find and put yourself in the place of the tax collector. So have mercy on me. I have nothing. Um, that can be hard to say, well, there's got to be more to it than that. It's not. It's just your trust and belief in him. That's it. Are there consequences of that? Well, you got to believe it, but you don't have to worry about that right now. Like, well, then I'll have to do this and do this. No, 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 no. He does all of that. Don't worry about it. Just trust in him for the salvation of all your sins, all your guilt. Trust in him, it. And then get ready for the ride of your life. Leading unto salvation forever is good. Um, again, I'm sorry for the inadequacy, um, but that's, that's also who I am. Anything good and truth of this is Christ in that too. And I want to celebrate that through what we're commanded to do once we believe, which is to take the sacrament of communion. And so what this is, is the bread. And that bread, Jesus said, take, eat. When he was with his disciples before his uh, uh, crucifixion, he said, take, eat of this bread, which was broken for you. Why do you have no guilt? Because I gave my body for you. And then take and drink this cup, which is representative of my blood. Why do you have no guilt? Because the price has been paid by me shedding the blood for your sin, my sin. Remember this. Often as you eat and drink, remember me. And that's the reality of why you have hope. Not because eat this, then go start a church program. Eat this, then go be nice to your neighbor. No, eat this, remember me, be set free from sin, and watch out for the rest because it's amazing. So we're going to take this communion together. You do not have to take this communion. 
take this sacrament when you've done and you've asked God. Um, when you have claimed, sorry, take this communion once you've said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you can say that prayer of believing that Christ is the salvation from sin, please take this. If you cannot say that, honestly, hold the phone and hear and expose yourself to the gospel again and again because it's true. But today, if you say those words and can say them, have mercy on me, a sinner, and therefore I see Christ and his salvation for my sins, take this supper with us today. Um, what will happen is Andy and Joe will come up here, same as we've done, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and, and may Christ's power work within you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of Christ and the saving grace of the gospel. Please, um, please let us die to ourselves. Let us cast down any crowns we're holding on to so you may work. We are coming to you in communion today, um, not because the bread's delicious or the juice is good, but out of faithfulness to answer the call of, hey, when you've told us to do something out of faith, we are going to step into that because we know that you see far bigger things than we do. And as we take this bread and this cup as a faithful act of remembrance of your sacrament, of your sacrifice, uh, we, we do it um, because you've told us to. And we, we hope that you will be faithful to us as you always have been as we take your community together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.